0: I was alerted last week that for years on this podcast, I've been incorrectly using the expression writ large.
1: I saw that.
0: I thought that writ large meant in general. I did not realize that it actually means clear and obvious or exemplifying. So this Mm. is my apology to all of you. If any of you were confused, why did no one ever tell me that? Well, I didn't know. I think this seems like it's
1: a common misusage.
2: Yeah, I didn't know. Look, you know what, Galen? This is how language evolves. Like, you're just pushing the English language forward.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Five Thirty Eight Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. When we recorded this podcast last week, we still had very limited data on how Americans were reacting to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, 12 days into the war, we have a clear picture of how Americans want the US to respond and how they think Biden is performing as a leader. We'll take a look at that data, including polling that suggests large majorities of Americans support enforcing a no-fly zone in Ukraine, but also do not support sending US troops to the conflict. So how do we make sense of that seeming contradiction? We're also gonna take a look at polling inside Ukraine and Russia. We received a question from a listener about Russian President Vladimir Putin's high approval rating and how accurate polling can actually be in an authoritarian country. And on the flip side, is it possible to conduct accurate polling inside Ukraine, a country experiencing war with millions of people displaced? And we'll check in on the possible legal case against former President Trump that the January 6th committee's lawyers laid out for the first time last week. Here with me to discuss it all is senior writer Amelia Thompson DeVoe. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is Senior Elections Analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. And Senior Politics Reporter Monica Potts. Hey, Monica. Hey. I missed your formal introduction while I was away, but uh, welcome to Five Thirty Eight and welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you.
3: Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Awesome. Let's get to it and let's begin with our favorite question, good use of polling or bad use of polling. So the big question today is how much stock to put into polling conducted under extenuating circumstances, namely in a war zone and in an autocratic country. Our first example, as I mentioned, comes from a listener. So Tom writes, quote, we see in the news all the time stories about how Putin is popular in Russia. But I was wondering, can we trust Russian polls or are they like the media and run by the state? If they are legitimate, what is the quality of Russian polls? I guess what I'm asking is, is Putin's approval rating a good or bad use of polling? All right, great question, Tom. And he specifically mentioned a poll from the Levada Center showing Putin with a 71% approval rating and a 27% disapproval rating as of February of this year. So two Tom's question: Should we trust this poll and other polls conducted in Russia?
2: You know, I think this is a good use of polling because this particular polling firm seems to be pretty well respected outside of Russia. And specifically, it seems to be independent. So to the question about whether this is affiliated with Russian media, it is what they call it in Russia, Sociological Research Institute, which is, I think, how public opinion research is often described And so I don't think we have a reason to disbelieve this poll. And there are a lot of reasons that Putin's approval rating might be high, independent from the things you might expect, like pressure or the results were massaged or anything like that, which we can talk about.
0: Right. So I think people's immediate response to that might be, "Okay, well, how do you expect people to respond to polls honestly in an environment where independent media is being shut down and activists and opposition are frequently persecuted by the government. Yeah,
1: Galen, I'll admit that That was also my first instinct, was to say, oh, like, these polls can't be real. People are probably paranoid about saying anything, you know, against Putin or against the Russian regime. But actually, when we started to dig into this question, we came across an academic study by political scientist Timothy Fry, who actually conducted an experiment and asked people, similar to ways that, you know, like American researchers sometimes try to get at, like, racial animus without directly asking, are you racist? He devised a way to try to elicit people's true feelings about Putin and whether they were lying when asked a more direct question about his approval. And actually, um, the study found that there was not really evidence that people were lying to pollsters in Russia and that, generally speaking, we can trust these polls of Putin's popularity.
0: It seemed to me that there was some bias, but not enough to throw out the whole Russian polling industry altogether, right? Like, in some of the experiments, it was maybe off by six or seven points, But it's not like a six or seven point difference on a 71 percent approval rating means that all of a sudden Putin isn't popular in Russia.
1: Right. And I think also that some of the error was in the other way that people were saying they didn't like Putin when actually their other responses suggested that they did. So, yeah, I I think in general, when you see a number like Putin has 80 percent approval, which I think is the latest number that I saw. Obviously, polls always come with margins of errors, but it's not like that number is actually secretly 30 percent. Maybe it's 70 percent.
3: For me, the bigger question that might not be answerable is, do people have full and true and real information to make that assessment? So maybe they say they like Putin and it's true and they're expressing their true feelings, but it's based on. A lack of real information about what the regime is really doing and what the government is really doing. And that's about shutting down the press and closing off the Kremlin.
0: Yeah, that sort of brings up what Amelia mentioned earlier, which is that there may be plenty of reasons why Russians approve of Putin. One of them could be misinformation. What are some of the other reasons?
1: There's also this phenomenon in political science where there's like a a groupthink element to it, where especially in authoritarian regimes, people will approve of the regime because they think everybody else does and they go along with that. And maybe they aren't as, you know, it's not like they're following the ins and outs of politics the way that we do here on the podcast. So they think about it more casually and they just go along with their friends and family. There's also some evidence, you know, and this is interesting, perhaps for Putin's future, that. Once they are confronted with evidence that actually other people don't feel that warmly toward the leader the support really collapses and everybody turns against them at once and that's something that i've seen some speculation that all these protests uh, against the war and against implicitly putin in russia right now could be waking people up to being like oh like maybe things aren't going as well as i thought they were there's another also another theory that i saw that in authoritarian states there isn't kind of this notion that we have here in america where it's like well I'm a proud American, but I hate our government right now or something like that. That kind of the lack of alternative options in a place like Russia means that people identify Putin, to them Putin is Russia. And so they take their support for Russia and say, well, of course I approve of the leader of Russia because I approve of Russia.
2: You know, it is an interesting question what could change this if there isn't, you know, for example, like a really robust opposition that's standing up and saying, hey, we don't like what the leader of this country is doing and you should vote them out if that's not the context which is generally what happens here, what could change people's mind? And one thing that I did see in the research that we delved into is that economic performance is a big driver of approval in authoritarian regimes. And it's been sort of this constant in Putin's approval rating. And so, obviously, Very punishing economic sanctions have been imposed on Russia, and that is being felt in a bunch of different ways. And so it is possible that in this environment, people are really hurting financially, and that could change the way that they're thinking about the leader of their country in Russia.
3: One of the things that we might explore later or in more detail or learn about more later is also the use of social media in Ukraine to convey what's happening and whether or not Russians have access to that might also puncture the view of what's happening from inside Russia in a way that maybe other things couldn't.
1: Yeah, I think obviously the war is a big wild card on how the war unfolds specifically. I'm drawing on larger research about like the rally around the flag effect and, and the effect of war on public opinion people know about the rally around the flag effect. It's the idea that when you go to war, you know, the popularity of the leader increases as a result of nationalist pride, basically. And this did happen, for example, in 2014, when Russia invaded the Crimea. And that was generally seen as a very successful war, and it was over quickly. And there was also a lot of Russian sentiment for annexing Crimea. And it's not clear that that exists for Ukraine more broadly. And and also, of course, it seems, emphasis on seems, that the campaign to invade Ukraine isn't going as well for Russia. And so there is this pattern in political science where when you have a long and drawn out war with lots of casualties, so think Vietnam, think Iraq for the US, that that can sap a president's, in this case, popularity. And therefore, that could be another reason to expect Putin in the long term to suffer from this war politically.
0: Yeah, Amelia, to your point earlier on, saying that this Levada Center poll is a good use of polling, you can track this back to the late 90s. And you see that Putin's approval goes up and down. It's not some sort of straight line that you might expect if this kind of survey was capturing absolutely nothing in terms of Russian sentiment about their government. And you see that Putin's approval actually peaks around military conflicts invading Georgia, annexing Crimea. So in the past, it has been successful for Putin domestically. You also mentioned that one of the drivers of a downtick in his approval is economic circumstances. And you do see that when the Russian government tried to monetize its benefits in the mid-2000s, that there is a significant drop-off in approval. So there might be conflicting signals at this point, we'll have to see what happens next. For right now, though, it is worth saying that based on the polling that we do have out of Russia, 50% of Russians say that it would be right for Moscow to use military force to prevent Kiev from joining NATO. Only 25% say it would be wrong. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting
2: on the misinformation front that there is obviously a lot of Russian misinformation out there about what's happening in Ukraine. But the economic impact is something that, you know, people are feeling like they look inside their refrigerator and they see how much food there is in there. So I do wonder if whether or not this shows up in the polling, it is harder to create an impression that things are going well economically versus a war in another country where if you do have this massive state-controlled media apparatus, you can project an image that's not true. You really can't do that about something like the food supply when people are going to the store and seeing that there isn't food.
0: So it sounds like the answer to Tom's question is that this is a good use of polling. As we've mentioned here, it may be difficult to understand what public opinion looks like inside Russia going forward, but we will try to keep track of it. So keep your questions coming. We also want to look at polling coming from inside Ukraine, which is another extenuating circumstance. Of course, the country has been invaded, and now there are more than a million refugees have already fled the country, and people within the country are maybe displaced or in hiding or have moved. So last week on the podcast, we mentioned that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was experiencing a rally around the flag effect in his approval, You know, somewhere north of 90% of Ukrainians supported him. We wanted to come back to this question and ask, how do you poll in a situation like the one Ukraine is experiencing now? And I know that you all did a little bit of reporting on this. So what did we find? Should we be taking Ukrainian polls at the moment at face value? Yeah. So
1: in order to answer this question, I reached out to Timothy Breek, who is an expert on Ukrainian public opinion and polls. And he basically said, no, there's, there's good reason to be skeptical of polls that are being taken right now in this kind of wartime environment for, I think, the obvious reasons, and that's that people are being displaced, people are moving around. They're not necessarily answering their calls when they have, and, and taking a survey that takes X amount of minutes when they have much more immediate pressing concerns. So, you know, maybe we shouldn't be taking those exact numbers at face value. That said, Timothy did say that it does seem pretty clear that there is a rally around the flag effect going on. Obviously, that's what you would expect. Theoretically, numbers like 93%, which I think was the most recent poll that I saw, that doesn't happen when, again, when your actual approval rating is like 40 or 50%. Um, So basically, Timothy said that there's no doubt in his mind that there is a rally around the flag happening, but he wouldn't put too much stock in the exact
0: numbers. So the approval rating is striking, although, of course, supporting the leader of your nation when you're under attack maybe seems obvious. Some of the polling that really did stick out to me from this recent March 1st rating group Ukraine poll was that 88% of respondents believe that Ukraine will be able to repel Russia's attack. And 80% of the respondents said they were ready to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine with weapons in hand. You know, supporting your leader is one thing, being overwhelmingly optimistic about winning the war and being ready to fight yourself, 80% of Ukrainians. Is that what we would think of in public opinion as signaling a desired outcome or a truly held belief?
1: I think it comes from the same kind of emotional, patriotic place as a rally around the flag effect does. Although I, you know, I think that the methodological concerns still hold. That said, I, I would point out Timothy did send me a poll that was conducted via mobile app that he said you know would probably be a little bit more trustworthy because uh, people are, are bringing their phones around and they can still respond to like an online poll basically with a little more. Ease, that being a relative term, of course. And the poll that he sent me, which was conducted by a polling firm called Gratis between February 28th and March 1st. And this poll found that 62% of Ukrainians feel angry because of the war, and 77% of Ukrainians believe that the country will emerge from it stronger. So those are somewhat consistent, maybe a little lower than the polls that you cited, Galen. So again, I, I do think that that sentiment is there in Israel.
2: Yeah. So I'll add. Galen, I think this is all coming in the context of a broader trend that we observed even before the fighting had started, which was an uptick in feelings of Ukrainian nationalism and solidarity in the the context of the war with Russia, which, you know, this most recent invasion obviously happened somewhat recently, but the country has been at war with Russia for years. And so you've seen this kind of growing cohesion and sense of national identity. And before this most recent Round of fighting started. Another poll found that 71% of Ukrainians already thought the country was in a war with Russia. Another poll found that a sizable share of Ukrainians said that they're either prepared to fight Russia, that was 33%, or protest if the war starts, it was 22%. So obviously that's nowhere near as high as the numbers we're seeing now. But those polls were conducted before we had these methodological concerns about people moving around, not responding to polls. And it was also sort of more of a hypothetical. So I do think it's striking that even at that moment, people were still, you know, significant minority of people were were still saying that they would be willing to take up arms. Although one more thing I will add to sort of provide a little more context to that polling is that willingness to fight was higher in the parts of the country that were further from where the fighting actually was. So- Mm. You know, I think there is a little bit of a kind of signaling, you know, this is a way to show patriotism, but still what we're seeing in the polling now, I think, isn't coming out of nowhere and it's signaling something, even if it's not necessarily an accurate gauge of how many people would go out and fight if they needed to.
0: All right. So I know this good or bad use of polling was a little bit different than our usual examples So I think we'll say, in general, this is a good use of polling. We're not going to be too flip about it. It's polling in a war zone. Let's move on, though, and discuss how Americans are responding to the war. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538.
3: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
2: And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
0: Last week when we spoke about Americans' thoughts on the war, we were mostly looking at data collected before Russia's invasion. But now that we're a week and a half in, how do Americans feel about the United States' involvement in the Ukraine conflict? Do they support what we've done so far? Do they want more action or less? Monica, I know you've reported on this. So what does the picture look like?
3: I think people generally are on the side of Ukraine and against Russia. There isn't really a partisan breakdown when you look at that. Those are bipartisan sentiments, which was interesting to me because Ukraine and Russia were such a issue in the 2020 election that I wondered whether people would bring the sense of partisanship to those questions. But they definitely do not want America to send ground troops into Ukraine to defend Ukrainians against a Russian invasion. And I went into reporting on that, wondering whether Americans' views on wars in general have changed since we left Afghanistan. And in general, Americans support defending our allies against nations that we see as threats to our national interests, which I found interesting because support for that has risen a little bit when it's hypothetical. So the Chicago Council on Global Affairs had polled on this, and they found that Americans supported defending Taiwan in the instance of an invasion by China, which it was over 50%, and that was the highest that that question had ever ranked.
2: One of the things that stood out to me is how people are responding to questions about the economic cost of continuing to, you know, impose various forms of, of sanctions for informal on Russia. And in one poll, 80 percent of respondents said the U.S. should stop buying Russian oil, which would have a big impact on oil gas prices here, and that's been something that's already been a huge problem for Biden. I mean, we've had a lot of really good reporting on the site about how this is rising gas prices are one of these things that's really political kryptonite for a president because it's super visible, really affects people. So it is interesting to see that response because on the one hand, it signals that maybe people are willing to incur some sort of personal financial costs to support Ukraine and to try to go after Russia in ways that are not military. On the other hand, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical that everyone is going to make that connection when they see gas prices rising. I'm not sure they're going to think to themselves, you know, oh, gas is much more expensive than it was a month ago. That must be because we're doing the things that I want the government to be doing to try to support Ukraine in the war with Russia. So that's one thing that like, I take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. You know, it tells us something, but I'm not sure if people are actually like making that connection in the way that they're thinking about gas prices.
3: In general, I wonder a lot about whether people support things when they're hypothetical actions. And then once the consequences of those actions become clearer, start to wonder about whether their support wanes quickly. I think some of the things that you look at when people are looking back on past wars, when the consequences and successes and you know, necessity of those wars are very, very clear because they're written in history. Their views on those kinds of wars become very complex and
0: varied across the population. Yeah, I'm curious, Monica, about some examples of that.
3: Looking back, when Americans are surveyed on historical wars, World War II, people generally thought was worth it, it was worth fighting. And I think that's because, you know, exactly what we were fighting for and exactly what the outcome was are all very clear right now. Vietnam is very much less Only 22 percent of Americans, I think, in 2017 said that that had been worth it. And that was an interesting war as well, because the documented mistakes that the government made and the ways that they shielded those mistakes from public view became very, very public later on. And so people, I think, now know what Vietnam really looked like the whole time and what the costs really were of fighting in Vietnam. And so I think that a lot of times hindsight gives a clearer view. People are much more able to judge what they think.
0: Yeah. Amelia, to your point about, it was an Ipsos Reuters poll that showed 80% of Americans supporting a US move to stop buying Russian oil. They also asked, would you be willing to make the trade-off even if it meant higher gas prices? And in that case, 52% of respondents still said that they would be willing to pay more for fuel or gas in order to stop buying Russian fuel. The questions that you've all posed about the concept versus the actuality might apply there. But I think the most striking conflict in that Ipsos-Reuters polling was that 74% of Americans said that they supported creating a no-fly zone over Ukraine, while a majority still said that they did not support sending troops. What should we make of that? I mean, how do you enforce a no-fly zone without sending troops? What does it mean to you to enforce a no-fly zone if you don't want to get involved in the conflict in a military way?
1: Yeah, so I think this pretty clearly shows that Americans just haven't thought through what a no-fly zone means. I think it's like a no-fly zone sounds like a great alternative between going to war and doing nothing, but they haven't kind of thought through the idea that somebody needs to enforce it and that that would be the United States and that would or NATO, I guess, and that would mean shooting down Russian planes that violate the the no-fly zone, which we know from other polls that Americans are wary of direct confrontation with Russia. They don't want to start a war with Russia, etc. One of the interesting things, so there've been a few polls that have shown support at different levels, I think, of Americans for a no-fly zone. There was one poll of the UK that I wanted to highlight, which showed maybe why question wording matters and and the, the details matter. So... This poll asked, some are calling for a NATO no fly zone over Ukraine. This would mean that NATO countries like Britain would commit to shooting down any military aircraft attempting to fly over Ukraine. This could force the Russian military to stop launching air attacks against Ukraine, but it could also trigger an armed conflict between Russia and NATO countries. And then it asked, would you support or oppose the no fly zone? And in this case, 39% were opposed. Only 28% were in favor and 33% didn't know. So I suspect that if you asked a similar question here in the United States, the numbers would look similarly. People would realize maybe what that means. What the correct level of support is, is maybe a, a more existential question, one that we've talked about on this podcast before about like the Build Back Better Act and things like that. And it's, you know, when is it better to just ask people their immediate impressions of something? And when is it better to describe to them what it is and potentially introduce bias into the question, et cetera?
0: Yeah, to the question specifically about the United States going to war over Ukraine. This if Reuters poll showed that 39% of Americans said the US should send troops to Ukraine to help defend Ukraine from a Russian invasion. That is up from polling about a week ago when only 29% of Americans said we should send troops to Ukraine when thinking about the circumstances under which Americans support going to war. What are those circumstances? Does this tick those boxes? How should we, like, you know, 40% of Americans saying that we should go to war seems like a really big number.
1: Yeah, that was definitely on the higher side. I saw another poll from YouGov that put the number at 31%. But yeah, it it seems to me like the difference is Ukraine versus NATO countries being attacked and whether that is a line that Americans are drawing because they're aware of the NATO security agreement that we're contractually obligated to defend NATO countries, or whether it's just because they're like, well, what's happening right now is Ukraine, and I don't want to go to war. So that's where I'm going to draw the line. But anything worse, oh yeah, that would be bad. I think that's up for debate. But there were a few interesting polling questions that I'd highlight along this line. So Quinnipiac found that 70% of Americans uh, would support American troops getting involved if Russia invades a NATO country. That was notably high. And then there was also a very interesting YouGov poll that asked basically a series of questions which was if Russia invades the UK would you support the United States using force if they invade France, if they invade Poland, if they invade Finland, if they invade Ukraine. And the the differences there were very interesting and I think reflected a mixture of name recognition of different countries and also, you know, Americans like feelings and, and positivity toward these countries and their relationship with the U.S. So, for example, the U.K. was the highest. 58% of Americans thought that we should use force if Russia invades the U.K.
0: That seems really low to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there was also a sizable amount of, of do not knows, which I think is completely reasonable in, in all of these foreign policy questions because mm-hmm. people don't necessarily know the second and third order impacts of, of these things. But then on the other at the end of the spectrum, Ukraine was the lowest in this poll. So this was the 31% that said that we should use troops to repel a Russian invasion of Ukraine.
0: Monica, in your historical view on when Americans support going to war and when they don't, are there certain triggers for when Americans say, yes, it's time to go to war or yes, the balance, you know, the risks or negatives don't outweigh the argument in favor? I
3: didn't really find any triggers. But when you're talking about public support for action, a lot depends on whether we think that the conflict would be quick and successful on our part, which I don't think anybody thinks that a war with Russia would be quick or easy. And I think also they support a lot of things before they support troops on the ground. So that might be why people think that they support a no-fly zone because they, it feels to them less intense than actually like sending troops to go fight in Ukraine. But in general, sort of interventions that seem less intense, which is why you see a lot of support right now for economic sanctions against Russia because it seems like it'll be effective but also minimize our own costs to that. And then also in general... People want to support allies, which I think is why you see, you know, a lot of support for Great Britain, longtime ally people in America, for a lot of obvious reasons, feel like that would be, you know, attacking a close friend. But otherwise, sort of where in the world a conflict is doesn't matter so much. And also who's the sitting president doesn't really matter so much as far as what people support, which I found kind of surprising.
0: That's interesting. I mean, I think there's a general narrative that we've become more isolationist in the wake of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Is that the case? Were we also war weary in the 90s or in the 80s? Or is it truly new that Americans are sort of like less inclined to want to use military action after the war on terror?
3: I think they are a little warier of entering wars, but it also could just be the proximity of Afghanistan. We just ended the war in Afghanistan. I mean, Americans really do think that the United States plays an important role globally in protecting our allies and promoting our values. So I do, I don't think that that narrative that Americans are really isolationists is necessarily true. I think it just depends a lot on the circumstances and a lot on specifically what's going on and also, you know, maybe a little bit on what has just happened. So while Afghanistan was going badly towards the end and Americans were really very tired of that war and wanted to leave Afghanistan, you saw less support for engaging elsewhere like Syria and Libya. So it's really contextual.
2: Well, and it also depends on kind of how close to home it feels, whatever is going on. And I think that's a part of it that just, you know, as you were saying, Monica, varies conflict to conflict. Obviously, in the wake of 9 11, that was an attack on US soil. And so people felt very differently about that than a conflict where democracy is is at stake, but like U.S. lives are not directly. And so I think that's one reason that that poll you were highlighting, Nathaniel, about different allies was interesting, because I think it shows how a lot of this really is still emotional and still a sense of, you know, do I feel like my country or my country's very close ally is under attack? How far removed does this conflict feel from me. And I do think the media coverage of the war in Ukraine may have brought things home a little bit more to people in the U.S. I mean, you had a piece, Nathaniel, with this incredibly striking chart showing that cable news coverage of Ukraine has just skyrocketed. So I do think it's possible that people are thinking about this a little differently, but I also think it is a lot of it just about this kind of intuitive gut sense of how close is this to me and my country and my family, and it's not often this super rational, how would this play out, and how does this compare to previous conflicts, and how does this work in the context of other conflicts
0: we've been in? Yeah, so for now, we'll keep tracking these numbers. But it does seem like since the last time we checked in, Americans were already anti-Russian aggression and things like that. It seems like there has been somewhat of an uptick of support for taking action against Russia over Ukraine. Also, when we talked last week, it was still early to really say how Americans were judging Biden's response. Of course, it's been another week. And in that week, Biden also delivered his State of the Union address. Do we know any more about what Americans think about Biden's response? Because we had last week highlighted this conundrum where Americans basically seem to support the policy choices Biden was making, but not support Biden's actual performance on dealing with Russia. Is that still the case?
1: Yeah, so we saw a continuation of that, I think, for most of last week. But then at the very end of the week on Friday, we did get an interesting poll from Marist College and NPR and PBS. And this poll found that Biden's approval rating on Russia and Ukraine had really noticeably increased. It went from um, 34% approve, 50% disapprove, so pretty bad, to 52% approve and only 44% disapprove. So he's actually significantly above water. And not only that, but that actually also appeared to rub off on his overall approval rating, which I believe in the poll was up to 47%, um, which of course is higher than the 41%-ish average that he's been hanging out at for the last several months. There's just one poll, as we always say, you know, let's wait for some more confirmation. But this was a, a hint that maybe people are starting to draw the dots between, oh yeah, like, you know, I support these harsh sanctions and and not going to war just yet. And that's what Biden is doing. And he's all over cable news doing that. And he just had a speech where he talked about it in the State of the Union. And so maybe people are, are actually beginning to give Biden credit for his Ukraine policies now.
3: Yeah, it was a significant portion of the State of the Union and that was heavily covered. So it seems like also he laid out his vision and his actions very clearly. And so that might also be helping people connect the policy to his administration.
0: Yeah, I know we've moved on from the good or bad use of polling portion of this podcast. But one of the ways that NPR framed that poll when they published it was, you know, presidents don't usually get a bounce from the seat of the union, but it appears that this year, Biden might have. Is that what we actually think the story those numbers are telling us? Or is it? The fact that, you know, it's now a week and a half into the war and Americans have been paying more attention to that. Or do we actually think the State of the Union itself, that speech, has the power to change American minds?
1: I mean, it's all tied up together, right, Galen? I think that we have ample evidence from past State of the Unions, which typically do not move the dial on polling very much, that it probably isn't that by itself. If he had had it given a that same State of the Union without the Ukraine crisis, I guess that's not possible because he spent a good chunk of it talking about Ukraine, but like, he wouldn't necessarily have gotten that boost alone from the speech. But the fact that the speech was timed at a time that it could amplify his policies on Ukraine probably wasn't unimportant either. And then I'll also throw in the fact that, for instance, the COVID situation is significantly better than it was a month ago. So like, it's really hard to tease out the causality here, but some combination thereof, let's just say, cause it. But yeah, I don't think if I had been writing that article for NPR, I wouldn't have zeroed in on the speech so unskeptically.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was interesting, though, that it wasn't just Biden's marks on Ukraine that were increasing. It was also his handling of the coronavirus pandemic and his handling of the economy. And, you know, handling of the coronavirus pandemic, I think, there's a strong case to be made that as you were suggesting, Nathaniel, you know, the Omicron wave is finally subsiding, things are looking better. So there are a lot of reasons why people might be looking at the situation and saying, yeah, things are actually better, and Biden does seem to be handling this better. The economic question was interesting because that's not a situation where we've seen a big change with inflation or gas prices getting lower, you know, if anything, they're getting higher. And so I wonder if actually what I was saying earlier about Americans not making the connection between the war between Russia and Ukraine and the current economic situation is wrong. And maybe the war in Ukraine is giving them a reason to think that, you know, okay, we're seeing higher gas prices, we're seeing these um, kind of economic disturbances, but it's because of this war where we feel like, you know, it's really important for us to crack down economically on Russia. And it's given more of a sense of this has a purpose, that this isn't just Biden handling the economy badly, that this is something where we're sort of making a sacrifice for the greater good. So if people are making that connection, it could mean that even though, you know, it looks like some economic indicators are getting worse, people might not penalize Biden as much for that as you might expect, or I might have expected past Amelia half an hour ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also. Wouldn't even rule out the fact that maybe just like warm and fuzzies are on one issue or rubbing off on another issue. You know, we've seen this in the past and like maybe people are just reassessing how they view Biden in light of this new event in Ukraine. And I think in a lot of ways, like approval rating is very emotional and, and it's based on vibes and, and you know, a candidate's brand. And if they're seen as a strong leader in one regard, then I do think that rubs off in other words.
0: We should also say that Biden's approval rating has ticked up overall on average about a point and a half. So it may still be some days before we can tell a maybe more overarching story about it. And we'll have to keep tracking it, of course, to see if he he continues to improve. But we got to, you know, we got to always look at those averages.
1: Right, exactly, Galen. And we should just say that, like, maybe it's possible that this Marist poll just had an overly Biden-friendly sample and nothing actually changed. (laughs)
0: And we love to hedge. Okay. Well, let us leave things there. We're going to move on to the possible legal case against former President Trump. So, Amelia, please stick around for that. And Nathaniel and Monica, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Galen.
0: Thanks, Galen. All right, Amelia. Last week, lawyers for the House Select Committee to investigate January 6th laid out for the first time a possible legal case against former President Trump and some of his allies. The potential violation is conspiring to commit fraud and obstruction surrounding the outcome of the 2020 election. The argument was laid out as part of a civil case in California, so was not any kind of formal charging or anything resembling that, to be clear. But let's talk about what this hypothetical case looks like and where things go from here. So first of all, how serious of a crime would conspiring to commit fraud an obstruction be if the Justice Department decided to pursue it.
2: These are serious crimes. And I took a look at an analysis by Lawfare, um, and they were saying that corruptly obstructing an official proceeding is the most common felony charge that has been leveled against the January 6th Capitol riot defendants. So they say that among the 750 people who have been charged federally in connection with the insurrection, almost 40 percent have been charged with violating this offense, and it carries a 20-year maximum term. So this is not the kind of thing that, you know, is necessarily a little slap on the wrist. Obviously, judges have discretion in sentencing, so the maximum doesn't mean that you will get 20 years, but these are serious crimes we're talking about.
0: Is there reason to believe one way or another in terms of whether Trump would actually be charged or the Justice Department would pursue it? At this
2: point, we just don't know. This is the January 6th committee tipping its hand a little bit, but what they're really trying to do is get documents, um, emails from John Eastman, who is a Trump attorney who wrote the infamous memo, sort of laying out a path for Trump to overturn the election. And Eastman is claiming attorney-client privilege to keep those emails from being handed over. And so what is being argued here is, Is that those emails, those records are likely to point toward crimes being committed. And that would create an exception to attorney client privilege that would allow that to be overridden. So this is connected to another avenue and an attempt to get other evidence like this isn't the January 6th committee sort of trying to put public pressure on DOJ, um, or at least that's not the first goal. But I do think it highlights what is going to be a challenge for the Department of Justice when this investigation is further along. I mean, they've done a huge, huge, huge amount of investigating. They've interviewed hundreds of people. There's a massive amount of evidence and it's not clear what DOJ is doing on its own, but there will be, a decision that has to be made by Merrick Garland, the attorney general, about what to do with all of this. And obviously, it would be huge to prosecute a former president, but there could also be a lot of public pressure to do so if it seems like there is compelling evidence that Trump committed crimes.
0: As you made clear, this information that was laid out in this California civil case is regarding preventing John Eastman from using attorney-client privilege to shield his documents and doesn't have to do with the Department of Justice's decision-making. But what are the steps between right now and when the Department of Justice will have to make its decision or when the evidence against former President Trump is fully laid out by the committee? In
2: terms of the Department of Justice's decision-making, they could be doing their own investigation. We don't really know what the timeline could look like. Obviously, there's a point at which Merrick Garland might no longer be the attorney general. And so I think, you know, they probably want to proceed on this pretty speedily. But we don't have a really good idea at this point of this so Six months from now, we should have a sense... Federal investigations just tend to go slowly and um, they don't give a lot of signals to the public about when they're going to be making their decisions.
0: Do we have a better sense of the January 6th committee's timeline?
2: We do have a better sense of what the January 6th committee's timeline is looking like. It's been reported that they're aiming to put out an interim report of its findings in the summer and that they're going to try to wrap up depositions by the beginning of April, and then they would hold public hearings. So we could get a much better sense soon of what they're finding, not just, you know, what they disclosed in this particular case, but the whole story that they're trying to tell.
0: Of course, as you mentioned, it would be a big deal to charge a former president. What are the challenges to that? And why might it be difficult to prove that Trump attempted to defraud the American people?
2: So a big issue here is the question of intent and whether Trump knew that he had in fact lost the election and kept pursuing these illegal methods of overturning the election. Because there is an argument that you know you can imagine a criminal defense lawyer making that Trump was deluded, and he was in his own world, and he genuinely believed that he had won the election and that he was taking the right steps to preserve American democracy. The January 6th committee presents a lot of evidence in this finding of all the ways that Trump was told that he had lost the election and he had been like involved in all of these legal cases that had gone nowhere. And it had been months and months of people saying to him over and over again, you know, you've lost, this isn't going anywhere. So I think it's pretty clear he should have known. And the question is whether you can prove that he did, because intent is important to proving this. And so I think that's one of the challenges that a prosecutor would have to weigh in deciding whether to bring charges against a former president, because this is the kind of thing where you really don't want to indict a former president unless you really think you can win.
0: Is there any precedent for this in American history?
2: No, you know, prosecuting a former president. It's something that could have happened with Nixon, but didn't. So it would be huge. And it would be especially huge if a former president was being prosecuted at the same time he was running for president again. I mean, that would be truly wild. Again, we don't know at this point what the Department of Justice is going to try to do, but I think that's another reason that they're going to be approaching this with a lot of gravity. And they may decide that this congressional investigation has gone forward, they're going to present the results of their investigation publicly, and the American people can judge. On the other hand, if there is compelling evidence that Trump committed crimes, they may may feel like they need to bring a case against him with all of the political risks that that carries. So it'll definitely be interesting to see how DOJ approaches this. And also, you know, it's interesting to get this little glimpse of how the January 6th committee is telling the story of what happened and the way that they're framing it, because that's obviously going to have an effect on what people want the Biden administration and the Department of Justice to do.
0: All right. So one more big news story to keep track of, which we will do here on this podcast. Amelia, thank you for updating us. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room and Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. Emily Vinesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts dot at 538com You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.